Will you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2? And we're going to be going through verses, Lord willing, 12 through 16. We're going to dip back a little bit to 12, and we'll read the text and dive into the latter part of that passage there um, in the next few minutes. And uh, out of reverence and respect for God's Word, if you're physically able, will you stand with me right now as we read it? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works within you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. That's the word of the living God. Last week I heard a lot of comments uh, coming from, uh, it seemed like this is almost like a home theme verse for a lot of us <laughs> in uh, Philippians 2.14 when it says, Do th all things without complaining and disputing. And I don't know of a person, when we look at that verse, that that doesn't uh, bring some measure of conviction upon. If it doesn't bring conviction, then we're probably, uh, probably not being honest. It says, Do th all things without complaining. And it, but that verse flows from what precedes it. We talked about it last week some. But by way of summary, it says, as you have always obeyed in my presence, not only in my presence, but now in my absence. If it's real, it'll be in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we talked about the fact that really what he's calling upon the church to do is to work out in their life, in other words, the way they live, the truth that precedes that passage, and that is that God in Jesus became a man. Think of it. We talked about the confession. The confession of the church, the cornerstone confession of the church, is that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself through Jesus, and that Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to, but humbled himself and became a man and became obedient unto the death on the death on the cross. He became a slave of God. That's literally what that means. In verse 7, bondservant really means slave. He became a slave of God. He put himself under the slavery, if you will, the control, the complete control of the Father. Being equal with the Father and, and having all rights as God. Jesus Christ always has been God. He is God now and he always will be. And he said, you know what, if that truth, if you confess that truth, here's the, here's the, here's the deal. A confession of that truth from the heart which takes the Holy Spirit, by the way. You remember we talked about the fact, the Bible says you can't make that confession apart from the Holy Spirit and mean it. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you really mean that confession, and you, that's how you get in. That's how you're saved. You confess, yes, He came, lived and died and rose again. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my only hope. I bow down to Him by faith on this side of eternity then that's going to impact how you live. It's got to. If that confession is real, 
and you really mean it, and I really mean it, it's going to impact how we live. means that it impacts how we live, not because, not to get saved, but because we are saved. And that's what he means when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We've always got to be careful when we read that passage, but we've always got to highlight the fact. And this is our profession, and it always will be because it's the Bible profession. Salvation is by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No one, no one in heaven will be there because they worked to get there. Everyone in heaven, the redeemed, will be there because of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? So when it says work it out, he's talking about the fact that when that confession is made, it will work itself out if you'll humble yourself like our Lord did to his control of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, it'll work itself out. We, we quoted Calvin here because I don't think you can improve upon it. We are not saved by faith and works, but we are saved by a faith which does work. The sooner or later, it's going to come out. Sooner or later, surely it's going to come out. And he said one of the ways you'll know it's coming out, recognizing in verse 13... It's God who works within us both to will and to do for His good pleasure. We celebrated last week in humility but in truth that any incentive, any desire that you and I have to walk in obedience to God is from the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Any time that we do walk with God both to will and to do for His good pleasure is the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. The Apostle Paul asked a great question in Galatians. He said, are you trying to perfect or complete or finish that which was begun in the Spirit by working it out in the flesh? He said, listen, from pillar to post, your salvation is the work of God, not the work of men. Not only do you get in by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and the gift of faith, but you're sustained by the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit and His empowerment within you to live holy and also to desire to live holy. Any appetite that you have from God, any, any hunger, any, albeit as small as it might occupy in your life right now because of the way you're living, any hunger you have for God can be attributed to the Holy Spirit who lives within you. You can't even take credit for that. And then he says, okay, and let me tell you how that's going to manifest itself. Here's how it's going to manifest itself. It's going to be that you're going to start to do everything without complaining and disputing. Boy, does that hit home? You are going to begin. Now, it's a progression here. It says in verse 15, let's give us a little bit of relief here, that you may become. We are becoming, you know. We are, we are positionally holy the moment you got saved. But practical holiness is a daily walk. And we're, we're becoming this. And we're, we're to, to, to measure and gauge our progress means that we're going to praise Him more and we're going to grumble less. I thought about this a lot. And this uh, curious testimony came to mind. It's not curious, but it just fits. It doesn't seem like it would fit in this context, but I believe it does. Jill and I got married at First Baptist Church in Vidalia, Georgia. The current uh, worship pastor there was rushed to the hospital several months back. 
um, and subsequently flighted to Savannah, which is about some 90 miles away, to a regional medical center because his aorta had a tear in it. And the tear was just, it was just, it was like a, like tearing a sheet of paper and it was starting to depart. And his life was in jeopardy. They got him to Savannah and they got him, uh, Brother Al, and I think I told you about this and shared it with you, but they got him on the, it's a bona fide deal. I didn't read this in the National Enquirer. I've talked to him. Matter of fact, seen the film of, of where this happened on the, uh, on the uh, cath they did on him. He said, listen, you better call your wife. And here's the deal. You might just die on the operating table. If when we go in and we start to try to make this repair, it's a possibility when we go in and make this repair that it'll just go ahead and tear. And if it does, you're going to start bleeding internally. And we're going to, to, we're going to fix it in a quick hurry. And they had like three or four surgeons just with bated breaths gathered around him. And they were waiting. And in case that happened, we're going to crack open your chest immediately. You'll have to get in there right now and fix this thing right now or you'll die and bleed to death on the operating table. You need to call your wife. I mean, he went from having a normal day to two hours later laying on a hospital bed. Didn't even have time to call his wife. And he has to call and say, you need to come to Savannah because I might die. He's a young guy. One of the nurses led by the Holy Spirit said, you a worship pastor? He said, yeah, I, I, you know. He, she, a, he said, you know any songs? He said, yeah, a lot of them. She said, why don't you sing? He said, sing? She said, yeah, why don't you sing? Sing one of them. And he broke out into a praise song and started singing this praise song. And of course, he didn't feel like it, but he broke out and started singing this praise song. And while they were doing that, they're looking up on the screen and they see this tear in the aorta and it just starts closing. And ever so gradually, and one of the surgeons looked up and he said, this aorta is repairing itself. And that thing, when it was torn, it came right back in two. And he left home and went back to Vidalia the next day. God fixed it. Amen? And that kind of power was ushered in with praise. Let me tell you something. You cannot praise and gripe at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. You're either praising Him and not griping, or either you're griping and you're not praising. Don't let anybody take your praise. That's why I want so badly for us to do that Brooklyn Tab song. I wish we had it ready right now. If I could sing it and I wouldn't ruin it and kill it so you'd never want to listen to it again, I'd break into it right now. And it is, I never lost my praise. I never lost my praise. I might have lost friends. I might have lost my reputation. I might have lost this. And they go through this list of things that you could lose. But I never lost my praise. It's not for sale. The enemy cannot have it. God inhabits the praises of His people. When we grumble and gripe and complain, the, the message beneath the radar screen is this. God, you missed it here. I thought you were sovereign. I thought you were in control. But now things have not worked out the way that I thought they were to work out. And apparently you're not sovereign and you're not in control. Let's look at these words. The word complaining means grumbling. It means just, it's kind of like this. When you're told to do something and you don't want to do it, like when you were a kid, or maybe right now, you know, somebody, a boss tells you to do something, you know, and you go over there to the back part of the, and you think nobody's listening or anything like that, and you go, <laughs> like that. 
That's the sense of this word. Now the other one is disputing. This means something that happens in the mind. It's an intellect. It means questions or doubts or criticism directed toward God. Now, let's hold on for a second. God's not too big to be questioned. But I want you to know something, and this, this text is going to bring us here. But I can stop right here and tell you this right now and share this with you right now. Don't let your understanding be your authority. The Word of God is your authority. Don't let your understanding be your authority. If you wait until you understand all the dynamics of the Christian life and what's going on around you, you're in for a long wait. But what does the Scripture tell us to do? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. I've got a friend of mine who wrote a song to this effect, picking up from what Charles Haddon Spurgeon commented on that text. When you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. And you know what that'll do? That'll take the griping and complaining away. And praise. Can I urge you this? At the moment you feel the least like praising him, that's when praise is at its most effective and powerful. We talk about the sacrifice of praise. We've resigned praise to 20 minutes on Sunday morning when it's supposed to be a 24-7 proposition. It's the grace of the believer to praise Him in all circumstances. Because, see, I know something the enemy doesn't know. And that's this. My God is in charge. As a matter of fact, the enemy does know this. But I can apply it to my life and say, My God's in charge. His plan's going forward. And the enemy cannot stop it. He says, what are the results of this? That you may be blameless. That word blameless means that you can't be accused or criticized because of the sin in your life. That's what it means. It just means, it doesn't mean not to blame. It just means blameless. It means that you're living a life with a bent such a way toward holy living that people can't make accurate accusations against you. They might criticize you, but it'll basically be based on false criticism and false accusations doesn't mean perfect. It can't be perfect, but we can be blameless. And it says harmless. It means innocent and pure. It means that I don't go around trying to advance my own cause or deal with my own enemies. I let God do it. When Jesus Christ went on this earth and started, uh, started uh, chasing down every act of criticism and started chasing down every person that rejected Him. That's all He would have done. He said, listen, you're not going to be satisfied with me if you don't believe any way or shape or form. John the Baptist came and you thought he was a nut. Now I came in a different spirit. You seem like alleged and you don't like neither one of us. He said, wisdom is justified by his children. Just watch my life. See how it turns out. And we're still worshiping today. Amen? He said, innocent and pure, above reproach. That's just north of L.A.J., Amber. Above reproach means this. If you take the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the um, Old Testament, which the Old Testament writers quoted from often, or the New Testament writers quoted from often, you'll find out that that Greek word used in the Old Testament was the word that's translated from this word, or the word from which this is translated, it means a sacrifice without blemish. It means that you've been checked out, 
and and the, and the sacrifice has been checked out, and that we don't find any blemishes. There's a there's a quality about this and a quality about this life that is above reproach. It is it is above credible accusation. There's a purity about the profession so much so that even I heard a Christian apologist say one time, and I've told you the story. We were at Kennesaw State University, and he was up there giving a speech on the three reasons why. The resurrection, you know, theologians as well as, and he gave this wonderful talk, and I didn't understand any of it. And he had a question and answer thing, and people were going, Dr. Craig, so and so, yes, you know, now they, you know, when you talk to people who are intellectual, you try to be intellectual yourself, and, you know, they're doing all these questions. I got to the end of it, and I said, He speaks to close this out, I'm going to ask him a question. I said, Dr. Craig, when did you come to faith in Christ? He said, I'm so glad you asked. His whole countenance changed. And he said, There was an aggravating girl that sat in front of me in a German class in high school, and she was happy all the time. She was offensively happy. I got sick of her happiness and I said why are you so happy and she turned around and said it's because I know Jesus you'll be offensively happy wouldn't you like to be accused of that where does your joy come from friends brothers and sisters when it comes and it comes in the midst of most difficult circumstances that's when it's most powerful that's when the light shines the brightest it's when you least expect there to be any light whatsoever. Look what it says. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. My goodness, don't we have that? Joe and I were talking about it a few moments ago. Can we just attribute it to the restraining power of the Holy Spirit alone that we haven't killed each other yet? I'm talking about mass murder all over the world. There's only one way to explain that. It's because of the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. Crooked is the word from which scoliosis comes from. Curvature of the spine. Some people have it this way. I got it this way. Okay, that's a joke. I'd be seven, seven foot tall if it wasn't from spine. Scoliosis. It means, it means to deviate from the standard. He said, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a standard here of holiness, there's are expectations, and this world deviates from the standard every single day. As a matter of fact, it's not even close to the standard. It keeps deviating further and further away from it. It's a description of the world system. And the Apostle Paul roundly and the new, other New Testament writers can, 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 can criticize it. It means we've strayed so far away from the plumb line that we don't even know where the plumb line is anymore. As a matter of fact, we've straight away so far away from the plumb line that we even question whether or not a plumb line exists. What's the result of not complaining and griping, but trusting in the sovereignty of God, the rest that is for the people of God? You shine out as lights in the world. Jesus said this in John 8, 12. I am the light of life, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will... I'm the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but he'll have the light of life. Boy, there are people around you every day that need some kind of light or clarity because they're groping in darkness, and like we've talked about time and again before, this should increase our compassion for the lost because when you're lost, you act lost. Why should we expect lost people to act any other way except lost? And when you're groping in darkness, one direction looks just as good as the other. They're all the same. Do you see the enormous power and potential? But here's what I want to zone in on this morning. In just the next few minutes, look at this. Look at this. Look what he says. This is an amazing.
amazing verse here. He said, this is the result. You will shine out as a testimony. I've told you the story before. I'm a chicken. I can ride the mine train over and over again. That's about it. Most of you have gone to Six Flags. You know what that means. I go by the Goliath and I'm so grateful God gave me little children because it excuses me from having to ride it. Well, I've got to stay with Catherine. Or, no, I've got to be over here with Abigail. I would ride it, but uh, I've got to keep Abigail. I'm like, praise God for Abigail. And so you know what? Here's the, here's the deal. Went to Space Mountain. First time, I know, no big deal. But I started, I started up the way to Space Mountain. I was watching the videos, and they were making it out to be so scary. And I was by myself. I was, I was by myself. My mom and dad were waiting, and they said, going up there. We'll sacrifice him now and get rid of him now. And so we're going up there, and I'm watching the videos, and everybody's coming off of it scared, slapped to death. And I went all the way up there, which seemed like eight miles, to get on the ride, chickened out, and turned around and went all the way back out. And let me tell you something right now. I normally would have cared about the rejection that that caused and the scorn, but my fear of that ride was in excess of what I thought the people thought about me for chickening out on it. And so here's the deal. When I was walking back the other way, and I looked like Pugsley, and so I'm walking the other way, and so and everybody's having to get out of the way and make a way for me, and I noticed something reflecting back on that experience. Everybody, I caught the attention of everybody in that ride because I was going against the flow. I think we need some Christians who are willing to go against the flow to where they get enough of attention because here's our, here is our profession. Here is our claim. And listen to me carefully. This world is the Titanic. And it is going under. It is going under. It is going to be destroyed. And rather than rearranging the furniture on the Titanic, we need to be on the deck calling out and declaring, Get in the lifeboat, God sent a lifeboat, and His name is Jesus. And you need to get in the lifeboat because this thing is going under. We don't need to be over there with the violinists. You know, we don't need to be doing that. Get in the lifeboat. God made provision. God had made a way. He did make a way. And we need to stand out with a life that makes a difference. The Apostle Paul said, and the Bible teaches, and although church culture doesn't teach this, it is always the difference that makes the difference. You get caught up in the spirit of the age and act like everybody else and you're going in the same tide and flow that they are. You don't stand out at all. You don't stand out for your glory or my glory. We stand out for His. But look at, the amazing, look at this amazing verse. Verse 16. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Verse 16. It's probably going to take two weeks to go over that one. Suffice it to say this. Think about this for just a moment. Think of the implications behind this. The Apostle Paul, you know the Apostle Paul. Here he is, converted from Judaism, trying to destroy the church. God meets him on the Damascus Road and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And God reveals himself to him. He gets saved. And then he said, I'm going to make you the apostles of the Gentiles. And the Bible says up front, he said, Ananias, I want you to go talk to this guy. And Ananias goes, well, are you kidding? So this is a murderer. And he said, no, he's changed. He's a different man now. I want you to go tell him this. I want you to tell him all the things he must suffer for my name's sake. I wonder what the prosperity gospel preachers do with that. 
the first news the Apostle Paul gets out of the gate is, I want you to tell him everything he must suffer for my name's sake. Wow. Name it, claim it, confess it, possess it. Wow. He puts his life on the line to, to plant these churches. And listen, listen to this. This is a profound truth. He says this. The litmus test as to whether or not I will know whether or not my time among you was wasted or whether or not it's fruitful is your disposition toward God's Word. Think about that. He didn't write and say, when I find out what your building looks like, I'll know that my time of you wasn't wasted. When I find out what your budget is, I will know that my time in you is not wasted. When I find out the size of your choir loft, I will know that my time among you is not wasted. When I find out how large you are and how many people are coming, I will find out that my time was not wasted. He does all the measures and all the standards that we use to assay churches and assay where we're at are absent here. And he says this, here's how I will know. This is the one thing that will stand out. If I find out if I find out that you're still holding fast the word of life, I will know that my labor among you was not in vain. And I want to tell you, based on that standard, we're in trouble. Let me tell you what that text means. What that means is, when he says, I may rejoice in Christ, I've not labored in vain. When I find out that you're holding fast the word of life, it's, it's a word that means presentational. It means that I will find out that my labor among you was not in vain if you are sharing the word with others. It doesn't mean that you're reading it, but embedded in that is that you're reading it. And you're searching for the Lord. Because if you're not reading it and you're not going after it, what do you have to share? I want to challenge you sitting right there this morning. If that's the litmus test as to whether or not your salvation is making a difference, if that's the litmus test as to whether or not and where we stand with God, is your disposition toward God's Word, your reverence toward God's Word, how do you stand right now? The Apostle Paul told Timothy, the Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And the Bible says in Hebrews eleven six, without faith it is impossible to please God. Want to please God? I got to have faith. Where does faith come from? The Word of God. See, if you want to, hey, all the pomp and circumstance, all the raised hands, all the other stuff, add it all together. Whatever you want it to be. You know, it doesn't say when I find out that you're active, when I find out a whole host of things that we value and we assign more value to the Christian life and devotion to Jesus more than the Word of God. And let me say this to you. Personal devotion to the Scriptures so that when there is an occasion to share the Word, I'm in the Word so I have something to share. You that send me cards sometimes, and you put scripture on there, I got you. I want you to know something. When you put a scripture on a card to me, 
I look it up. Because I figure, you know what, Lord? There might be a possibility. You've got rhema in there for me. There, there, must be, there might be something in there for me. And if there's something in there for me, I flat want to know what it is. You know what? In the church culture that we find ourselves in, our confidence in God's Word is at a low ebb. We're confident in our arguments. We're confident in our philosophy. We're confident in our presentation. But we're not confident in God's Word. And guess what? Our arguments, our philosophy, our presentation are powerless to save. A great book that I got the opportunity to read not too long ago, and Michael looking out, let me borrow it. So, Robbie Zacharias' autobiography. If you know much about him, he's a evangelist, and most of evangelistic work is in apologetics, and he goes to universities and speaks to brainy people. And it's a wonderful book. I couldn't put it down. I enjoyed reading it. He comes from an area in India, skeptics. He said they're full of skeptics around where he lives. Tradition has it that the Thomas, one of the skeptics among the twelve, left when they scattered after the persecution and went and ministered in the area that he comes from in southern India. He lived a, uh, in a pagan culture. I think he said in the book that the county is now that the Hindu gods are up to 350 million. It's a prominent religion in India where he comes from. Apparently he had a grandmother, mother's mother, who was a Christian. He remembers fondly her coming and visiting them uh, to see them at their house and, and, and interacting with them. And he remember the love that he sensed from her. There was something different about her, this grandma. And uh, she died when he was young. Fast forward, he's raised in this home and he's not treated very well by his father. His father, for some reason or another, of all the children, he just didn't seem to like him. He just did not seem to like this son. And he couldn't do anything to please him. And he constantly told him, you're going to go up and be an embarrassment to me and my family. This family, you're going to fail. I see no hope with you. Well, he started believing that. Love all your children the same. Love all your children the same. And so, he winds up going to university in Delhi, I think, and he gets so low, and there's hopelessness around him, and his friends are hopeless as well. He goes into a lab at the university and gets several vials of poison, takes them to his house, and there's only one person there, and the, home, the house person was there, and all the rest of the family were gone. He goes into it and locks himself in the bathroom and just starts drinking the poison. You know what it was? He just knew it was poison. Started throwing up violently, just really getting just deathly sick. Got, got real scared then. Two or three weeks prior to that, he had two sisters, and they had gotten saved at a Youth with Mission, Youth with a Mission rally. They invited him to come to the Youth with Mission rally. He came, and there was a guy that shared, and he started being drawn. And the Holy Spirit was drawing him. You know, and the Holy Spirit, you don't come to God. God comes to you. And he started drawing him, started drawing him. And the guy who spoke that night, he made a big impression on him. And so he winds up in the hospital, and he's there fighting for his life. The home, the person that was at the house broke through and got to the bathroom, got to him, and they got medical care. And there he is, laying in the intensive care unit of the hospital, about to die, or could possibly die. His uh, mother's there by his side, who he had profound respect for, and she loved him lots, especially trying to make up for the fact that his father didn't seem to. His father later came to faith before he died, by the way. 
but he's in the intensive care unit, and he's, he's conscious enough to hear the voices around him, but not to respond to them. And this guy who was speaking at the Youth with a Mission rally came in. He said, I've got two gifts for him. He's talking to his mother. I said, I've got two gifts for Robbie. I've got a Bible, and I've got a verse. I've got a Bible, and I've got a verse. Potent weapons. Potent weapons. Potent weapons. He said, here's the Bible, and here's the verse. And it was John 14, 19. And Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Well, he heard that verse. And he said, Jesus, I'm yours. Save me. That verse penetrated his heart, and he got saved. Now he's a prominent evangelist, and he makes a trip over to India uh, sporadically to go back and see the home folks. And he's got some ministry there trying to help the impoverished and make a difference. He lives in Atlanta, actually. And um, on an occasion, he went back to India years later and well into his ministry. His wife was with him. They go to, uh, they're driving around the town where they're in, New Delhi, I guess it was. And she said, Let's go find your grandmother's grave. He said, Oh, my goodness. That's like looking for a needle in a haystack. There's no way we're going to find her grave. I mean, you know, billion people, you know, and here we are. And so she said, no, let's go try to find it. Well, she talked to, talked to the taxi driver, and he found out she was a Christian. He said, well, there's a Christian cemetery. That's easy to find. So we went to the Christian cemetery, and they got these books. He said, when did she die? And he said, 1955. And he said, well, let's go back to 1950. He said, no, I think it was 55. And so he starts going through all the stuff and looking for the – and finally, you know, what seemed like an eternity, to finally the guy got to the place in the book, and there was the plot, and there was the place where his grandmother was buried. And he looked over at one of his helpers there, and he had a pitcher of water and – some tools, and he said, here, go out there and carry them out there to this grave. And he had all the equipment he needed to clean it off because they knew it would be grown up. And so they go out there and make their way out there, and they clean off the grave, and he sprays the things so they can read. the. And when he's standing there, he remembers standing there as a kid around the you know, the ceremony, and there he was, and they were about to, but there's the body, and they're about to bury it. And they clean off the tombstone, and there's her name, and there's a scripture. Care to guess what it was? John fourteen nineteen, because I live, you too shall live. It's the power of God's word. It's the power of God's word. Can I say this to you? One word from God is worth ten million from a man. And we're so wordy we don't know when to shut up. And we're not listening. And we're waging a war with some weapons that are no threat to the enemy. Human reasoning means nothing to the enemy. You know what we do? We have no reverence for his word. We're not in his word. We have neglected it. And we've lost our confidence in it. We think we're going to talk somebody into faith. You know, they're going to be impressed with my intellect. I'm going to talk them in to something that is supernatural. And the breakthrough comes... When the Holy Spirit takes his word and penetrates the heart of a man who's reading in the Bible and reads in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the just shall live by faith. And Martin Luther read those words and thus began the Protestant Reformation. 
God's word is alive. And to neglect his word is to neglect him. I don't read his word to be a better parent. I don't read his word to be a better pastor. I don't read his word to be a better husband. I read his word to know him. And if I know him, I will be a better pastor. And if I know him, I will be a better husband. And if I know him, I will be a better father. This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. When you look at the Bible, you look in church history. And I was going to go there this morning, but we don't have time. The Word of God has always been the catalyst for every revival. And fidelity to the Word has always been the result. You mark it down. You mark it down. Oh, believer, listen to me this morning. Take them all and put them under this one. Because they don't matter, and none of them are eternal, except what has been God-breathed. And this is what thus saith the Lord.